The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Welcome to Westway Christian Church. If we haven't met, my name is John, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be we're reading through the Gospel of Mark for this series. Uh, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. Um, you can follow along in your Bible or on the YouVersion app. We also, um, over the past few weeks, have made these booklets available. Um, I would encourage you to make to grab one while you, while you still can. We have, we've received permission to print a limited number of these from the publisher. So once the physical copies are gone, um, they're gone. And what you'll find in these is a lot of things. You'll find the Gospel of Mark itself, along with some questions that are really designed to help you um, study uh, this book, some space for you to leave notes, things to talk about in small groups, and we just want to encourage you um, to do that. Well, we threw a lot, well, we, there wasn't we, it was me, I threw a lot at you uh, last week in Mark uh, chapter 1. It's only 16 chapters, it's the shortest of the four Gospels, uh, but there's a lot going on. It's very high, very fast, very quick paced. Um, if you notice that Mark tends to stick with like the bare facts of the story, uh, some things he explains, those are usually things that are, that are Jewish customs or traditions. And the reason he's doing that is because the, the people that he is writing this letter to were Gentiles. They weren't Jews, so they would not have understood certain traditions that Mark is referring to. So those are the kind of things that he is going to um, explain to us and take more time on last Sunday when Ann and I got home, uh, we were talking about Mark, we were talking about the day, and Ann said that the gospel of Mark is like orange juice concentrate, Right, that's the little that's the little frozen juice thing. I don't know if you if anyone still buys those. I think they still have them. Um, it was the little frozen juice thing, and you you put it into the container and you add water to it to get um, to get orange juice. That's what Mark is like. You have to add something to it. The other gospels are like the gallon jug of orange juice, where there's more information, there's more things going on, and for this particular series, I hope one of the things that you're seeing is that you are going to have to do some work to understand everything that's going on in this gospel. We talked in the month of January about, about the kind of church that we were and who we wanted to be uh, for the year. And one of the things that we want to do is we want to be a church that equips you. We want to be a body of people that takes some responsibility and some ownership for learning and growing in our faith. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But that's one of the reasons why we've given out these resources. And Mark's goal is to tell us who Jesus is. And he's not going to do that through like some expositional sermon, right? He's not going to be, he's not going to be spelling all of these out for all of these things out for us. What he's going to do is he's going to talk to us and write down what Jesus's sayings are, and he's going to tell us what Jesus did. And he's going to expect us, the reader of this book, to do, to do some work and discern um, who Jesus really is. And one of the things that we try and do on a Sunday morning is, is put, some, put some context around the things that Mark is doing. And whether that, and, and that's not just Mark, it's any of the books of the Bible that we read. We need to understand a little bit about the history. We need to understand a little bit about the environment that these people were writing 
these, uh, these letters to these books too. Because as we've said a bunch of times here at Westway, the Bible isn't written to us. It's written for us, but it's not written to us. When Mark wrote his gospel, he had a certain audience in mind. He had a certain group of people in mind. And it was not a group of people in Western Nebraska in 2022. Because Western Nebraska didn't exist when Mark wrote this. Now God knew, God knew that in February of 2022 that we were going to be reading this book. So there are things for us in this, but Mark didn't, Mark didn't know that. Um, when we understand more of the context, the culture, and the history of what's going on in these, this actually helps us um, internalize the scripture more. It helps us understand what these authors are really trying to get across. And one of, those, one of the things that I want to share a little bit more about this week is this phrase, good news. We've heard that a lot. Maybe you've heard the word gospel. Um, but uh, the Greek word, and Dave, I've, I've, I've decided that Dave Robinson is going to correct me no matter how I pronounce this. Um, tomorrow morning in the elders meeting. So I'm just going to go for it. And Dave, tomorrow morning, you can, you can let me know how I did. Um, it's euangelion. So the Greek word for, for good news or gospel is euangelion. And we get an English word from that, um, evangelism or evangelist. Like it's that same kind of concept. And I said something like this last week. Um, Rome had its own version of good news. Rome had its own gospel that the people in Rome believed. And it went something like this. Caesar's the son of God and peace and security are found in trusting in him. So that's the, that's the cultural background that Mark is writing this letter to. When he says that there's, there's some other good news, that is a, that's a competition, and this would have been, this news that Mark is talking about would have been a counter gospel. Does that make sense? So the Romans believed one thing about who and where their peace and security came from. And Mark is going to proclaim something else. And those two things are counters to each other. They are at odds to each other. And I think one of the problems is we think about government, when we think about Rome, we hear, we hear that concept. Usually we think of the Colosseum. But when we think about government, our own understanding of government for most of the people in this room has been, has come from the last 300 years of American history, right? Like when we hear government, we are typically going to think of a representative democracy. So we hear the word government, we hear the, the gospel writers talking about government, and kind of in our minds, we think like, oh, the Romans like went to the poll every other year, the second Tuesday after the first Monday of the year, and they voted for Caesar. Okay, that's not how that was. Caesar was born into his role. Caesar maybe took his role by murdering the previous Caesar and assuming that position. So when we think government, one of our challenges is what we think. So Paul is, or Mark is writing a counter gospel. And then here's the second thing. There's a lot of people in our culture. There's a lot of people in our country. Probably, I would say most people 
that have fallen for the false gospel that peace and security come from whoever is in charge in Washington, D.C. See, there's a lot of people in our culture, and I would argue within the church, we have, we have tricked ourselves, we have convinced ourselves that if we can just get the right, the right person in charge in Washington, D.C., if they have the right letter at the end of their name in parentheses, like that's where we're going to find our peace and our comfort and our hope. So when we fall for this false gospel and we hear that the Jesus, we hear the Jesus gospel is counter to that, in our minds we're like, what's so bad about our gospel? What's so troublesome? Because most of us are living a pretty good life. Because what we have fallen for is our government provides us peace and safety and comfort and security. And this gospel is, is the opposite of that because the fate of the world is not dependent on who gets elected in Washington, D.C. And if you doubt that, I would encourage you to read through the book of Revelation. Because we already know who has won the long game. We already know who is, gonna, who, who is going to sit on a throne when it descends to earth. And that person is, is not going to be waving an American flag. And if that irritates you when I say that, like when I say things like that, I, I've wrestled with how do I talk about this culture that we live in. I think one of the things we just have to remember is, is that Christ is victorious. When we were going through the book of Revelation, I talked about how, how Christians throughout history have stood at the graveside of every empire. You remember that? Like when the Roman Empire went away, Christians were there. When the Soviet Union Empire went away, Christians were there. What we think when we hear that is us standing at someone's graveside. We think, we think of mourning, don't we? When the American Empire falls and Christians are standing at its graveside, we're not going to be mourning. We're going to be celebrating that Christ's reign is upon us. And if you're, if you're like this conversation makes you uncomfortable, good. Because this is how the Romans would have felt when they saw that there was a competing good news. They would have been challenged by that. And this gospel is announced by Mark by a guy wearing camel hair and eating locusts and honey in the most uncertain of ways. When Caesar began his reign, there was no voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased descending from heaven. The people that Jesus invited to be his followers, we're going to talk about this today. They weren't the wealthy. They weren't the powerful. They weren't the people who had influence. They were fishermen. Talked about that last week. The people he spent time with were the sick and the diseased and the demon-possessed and the outcasts. See, he preached and he acted out the kingdom of God. He didn't say, hey, everybody, look at me. He simply loved people and served them and proclaimed truth to them. And this 
This had consequences, and we're going to start to see these consequences today. I said this last week. If we would have just read Mark chapter 1, we would have thought that Jesus' ministry was a raving success. But then you flip into chapter 2, and we find something different. Let's, uh, let's read here. This is Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 12 first. It says this, When Jesus returned to Capernaum seven day, several days later, the news, quickly, the news sp- spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Can you think about that for a second? Those four guys letting, letting the man down. He's paralyzed and that's what Jesus says. You don't think that they were a little bit disappointed by that? But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or stand up, pick up your mat and walk. So I will prove to you that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. So our, our driving question as we're reading through the gospel of Mark between now and Easter Sunday is this. When we read a text, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, who is Jesus? How is this text answering the question, who is Jesus? What can we learn about Jesus? Because this gospel, like the rest of the book, it's not about us. This gospel is about Jesus. What can we learn about Jesus? And I think here's, here's the first thing. Jesus knows more about the lives and situations and circumstances of people than we do. Does that make sense? He knows more about what's happening in, in the lives of other people than we do. That's a blow to our ego. Because we like to think that we know everything that's going on in someone else's life. We know all of the intricate details of what they're struggling with and what they're being challenged with. But Jesus knows more than we do. And here's what Jesus knew to be true about this man. The fact that he was paralyzed was the least of his problems. That was the least of his problems. It wasn't that Jesus doesn't care, and we see, as we read through the story, that Jesus healed the man. But see, what Jesus knew was that this person was a sinner. And his sins needed to be forgiven before his circumstance would change. Jesus knows more about people than we do. And I think one of the things that we can kind of take from this is there are more important things going on in our lives than our situations and circumstances and our realities. 
There's something else taking place. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus speaks into that. And I think what he's inviting us to do as people who are being transformed by him is to look below the surface in the lives of people. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But I want you to know that Jesus knows more about people than we do. And since we're people, Jesus knows more about us than we do. What would that be like for you to know and believe and trust that Jesus knows every single thing about you? So when I'm guilty of sin, I don't have to hide. I don't have to run from God. I don't have to act like I'm telling God something that he doesn't already know. How freeing is that to just go and tell him? And then receive the mercy and grace that he's going to give me. See, this is freeing that Jesus knows about us. And Jesus has the power to forgive sins. He is not just here to fix people's physical problems. He's not just here to fix your situation and circumstance in your life. There are more important things than that. Spiritual things than that. Let's, let's read verse 13. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Now, maybe your translation doesn't say disreputable sinners, and it maybe your translation just says sinners. See what Mark is trying, or the the what we have to understand is what's going on here is the way that people looked at sinners in that day, especially the religious people, as we're going to see in a moment. Like there are some people you just don't hang out with, and this text is trying to convey to us that these are all of the wrong people that Jesus is hanging out with. I love the parentheses. It says there were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Here's, we ask that question. What can we learn about Jesus? Jesus breaks societal norms by spending time with the wrong people. The Pharisees did not hang out with tax collectors and sinners. That, was, that wasn't who they ran with. No one ran with these people because if you did, you were unclean along with them. So let's talk about tax collectors for a minute. Again, like in our context, right? We think tax collectors, we think IRS, right? And even when you're on the phone with them for six hours waiting for them to answer your phone call, like we know that that system is still working, Right, we fill out our tax form, and I know we hate filling out our tax forms. It's that time of the year, and we, we submit it. And if you overpaid, you get money back. What a, what a system we live in. 
And as much as we maybe despise our tax system, it is nothing like what Mark is talking about here from Levi. So Levi was a Jew. He was one of, one of Jesus' people. He was a Jew. And he was a tax collector. He was working for the Roman government. The same people that were occupying their land. So Levi would have a little tax booth set up. And if you saw the chosen, he would have had a Roman soldier there standing next to him. And what Levi's job is, is to take as much of your money as he possibly can. Skim as much as he can off of the top while paying Rome what he is supposed to pay Rome. And what do you get in, re in, in return for your investment? You get Roman soldiers in your city. You get Roman soldiers persecuting you. You get Roman soldiers killing you. See, the taxes of the day were funding the occupation. Levi was essentially a traitor. He was an enemy of the state. None of us would look at Levi and be like, oh man, you know, he's got such a noble job. Like we tend to think that people who work for the government have a really great job, wonderful benefits, set for life. I wish I could get a government job. No one was saying that about Levi. They hated Levi. He was a curse to them. He was against them. Again, he's raising money to pay for the occupation. How would we feel if we were in that situation? We wouldn't look too kindly upon Levi. And after he becomes a follower of Jesus, he invites Jesus and the disciples to come to his house for a party. And these people con consistently followed Jesus. That's, that's Mark's little editorial note there. These are the kind of people that surrounded Jesus. They were all the wrong people. And I love the Pharisees. Notice they don't ask Jesus this. Like, what a move. They don't ask Jesus why he's eating with those people. They ask his disciples why he's eating with those people. Why does he eat with such scum? Why is he associating with those people? This uh, book I'm reading in conjunction with the series uh, talks about it this way. The issue was not that Jesus simply tolerated the sinners or the outcasts or the scum of his society. The issue was Jesus seemed to actually like them. See the difference between those two things? It wasn't that Jesus like, oh, I guess we got to go show up at Levi's house because he invited us. When we read through the four Gospels, what we see is this image portrayed that Jesus actually likes hanging out with sinners. Jesus actually likes hanging out with the wrong people. And in his presence, it didn't seem like he was condemning their behaviors. It seemed like he wanted them to feel free to be who they were. He wanted them to feel comfortable in being who they were. And in Luke 7, Jesus is going, to be is going to be accused of two things. He's going to be accused of being a glutton, 
which is someone who eats too much, and he's going to be accused of being a drunkard who is someone who drinks too much. Now, the only way you get that reputation is if you eat food and if you drink alcohol. So they are coming against Jesus, and they're like, they can't figure out what he's doing. Why are you hanging out with these people? And I love Jesus' response. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. See, that's who I'm here for. I'm not here for the people who are self-righteous. I'm not here for the people who don't think they need me. I'm here for the people who are sick. And in that house, let me tell you, this is the Mulholland paraphrase. I'm going to step away from my Bible, okay? In that house, let me tell you, there's a lot of sick people at Levi's house. There's a lot of people who need a doctor. And what they need is a doctor to go into their space and build relationship with them and love them and serve them. And Jesus does that with his presence. And I think what we're seeing here is, is something that I've certainly experienced. You know, one of the things we hear as, as Christians is um, we want to we leave the 99 to go and find the one, right? If someone strays, it's a great Christian mindset to leave the 99 and find the one. But isn't it interesting how quickly the 99 get bent out of shape at Jesus for chasing the one? Well, don't go there, Jesus. Don't follow them there, Jesus. See, Jesus is pursuing all of the wrong people. Luke says it this way, I've not come to call those who think they're righteous, but know they're sinners and need to repent. See, the thing that Jesus is after in the lives of sinners, which, which what that means is this is what Jesus is after in our lives, is Jesus isn't just interested in a change of behavior. Jesus is interested in a change of character. Jesus is interested in making us into a people of obedient followers, of obedient lovers. And what the Pharisees wanted and I think it can be so easy for us to want is behavior change, is behavior modification, to not do certain things. Is there behavior change? Absolutely. But that's more effective than it comes through character change. See if it goes inside out. Jesus is after repentance of their hearts. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to expel the evil. Don't hang around those people. Why are you going there? Don't you know what's going to happen if you go into their house? And Jesus has come to transform it. And this is, this is grimy work for us. This is hard work for us to enter into spaces where sinners live. But this is what we're called to. And again, like I use that word called, it means invited. Did you notice that was the word that was used in verse 17? I have not come to call, I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but who know they are sinners. See, Jesus has come to invite them. And Jesus has come to invite us into his work. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 
this was not a matter of the, the people at Levi's house have to reach a certain level before Jesus is going to go and spend time with them. We were in small group last week and, and someone used this analogy. And I love it. She said, maybe, maybe you are someone who, maybe you've been lucky in your life to have someone come and clean your house. And what she said was, the interesting thing is about someone else cleaning your house is sometimes how you have to feel like you have to clean your house before they get there, right? Because you don't want them to see what a real mess is, so you have to kind of pick up a few things so it's not a total disaster when they walk in. That's not the way Jesus works. Jesus does not want us to do a pre-clean before he shows up. Jesus comes into our lives while we were yet sinners, while we are the worst of people, he comes into our lives and he shows his love for us. Let's read verse 18. Once, it's on the next page. Once when Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. So at first, this whole situation seems really kind of confusing. I had someone ask me a question um, about an hour and a half ago, something about last week's message. So I thought this would be a perfect time to talk about it. This conversation with Jesus sounds a little bit confusing. If you remember from last week, Jesus healed a man with leprosy. And he said, I want you to go to the temple Present yourself to the priest, make an offering, and this will demonstrate that you are clean. You will, like everyone will be able to see because you followed the Old Testament law in being clean. So now all of a sudden we have this situation where Jesus is being asked why he doesn't do something. Do you see, see kind of the challenge here? And what I love about this is this is exactly what we're supposed to feel when we read the Gospels. As much as the people of Jesus' day were confused by him, didn't understand who he was and what he was doing, when we actually read through the Bible, what we come up with a lot of times, and maybe it's just me, is a lot of confusion. Right? We think Jesus is going to do one thing and he does something else. So what's, what's really going on here? This is why context matters. So in my office, an hour and a half ago, I'm doing a little bit of reading. The only required fast of Jewish people was on the Day of Atonement, once a year. That was the only time they were all supposed to fast. The Pharisees fasted twice a week, and some of John's disciples fasted twice a week. So these, these people are coming to Jesus and they're like, hey, why aren't, you, why aren't you like the Pharisees? Why aren't you following this man-made religiosity? And Jesus is essentially saying, my disciples don't have to because I'm everything that they want. Now, if it had been the Day of Atonement, 
Jesus would have told them to fast. Why? Because Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus doesn't play games with religiosity. And I think that's what these people are trying to trap him in. Why aren't you like us, Jesus? Jesus doesn't play the game. And then he talks about patches and wineskins and what's that all about? I think sometimes we have this tendency to use Jesus like it's a band-aid on our life. Like it's a patch. I have this problem and I need Jesus to kind of fix it for me. Like I don't want to change my actual behavior. Anyone else? Like I don't want to actually do something different. I just want Jesus to fix this problem for me. And if you've ever put a band-aid on, and I think we all have, you know after a period of time, like it falls right off. See, Jesus is not a patch. Jesus is not something that we, that we apply to our life in the hopes that our life is going to get better because we've added him into our life. That's not what this is about. That's not what a relationship with Christ is about. That's not what coming to church on Sunday mornings is about. Like if we think that that's somehow going to cover over what's really going on inside of us. Remember, Jesus knows what's going on inside of us. Do you see how these stories are, are starting to come together now? See, Jesus is actually out to fix what's wrong with us. And what's wrong with us is before we know him, we are sinners. Oh, we're in a desperate state. And simply applying a patch to it isn't going to fix it. Pouring the newness of Christ into my old life it's going to burst. It can't, it can't function in that way. The old is gone and the new has come. And as Christians, we're called to live the new life. Not just apply Jesus. This past week, we were, I was recording a video with some other pastors in town, John from Mitchell Brian and Tyson from The Rock. And we, we started talking about the Christian life and John Simpson talked about three things. Like, what does the new life look like? Maybe we ask that question. I'm supposed to be new. What does that look like? John talked about, I'm going to give you three Christianese words, and then I'm going to explain them to you. Number one is justification. Number two is sanctification. And number three is glorification. So here's justification. When we enter into a relationship with Christ, we are justified. God looks down from heaven. He doesn't see our sin he doesn't see anything of our old life. He sees a new person. We have legally been justified because of the work of Christ. Like we are, when God sees us, he doesn't see us as a sinner. He sees us as his child. That's a finished work. We are justified. The second word is sanctified, and that's, that's a word that means to become holy. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit lives within us and the Holy Spirit makes us holy. And here's the thing that all of us um, type A'ers get to do. And I don't know what Enneagram number that is. But like, you know how you like to read your Bible? If you're a type A person, you really like to read your Bible. You like a checklist. You got to mark it somewhere because we all know if you don't mark it, it doesn't count for the day. Right? We get to pray. We get to do all of these things. 
Because the Holy Spirit, through those things, sanctifies us, makes us holy. We read the Bible, we learn, we grow, we pray, we spend time in relationship with other people, we serve. That's how the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, through those things. Our actions don't sanctify us, the Holy Spirit does. And then the third is glorification. Like that's what we, when we die, we are glorified. God glorifies us. He gives us a new physical body. We're glorified. So when we answer that, ask that question, like well, how, what do I have to do to become new? Well, I have to be justified. That comes through Christ. I have to be sanctified. That comes through the Holy Spirit. And I sort of have a responsibility in that. To live a life that honors God. And then I'm going to be glorified by the Father. See how that works, all three of the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's read these last few verses. Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? At least they asked Jesus this time. Jesus said to them, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did, during, David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread only the priests were allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And here it is again. Here's another one of those Old Testament law things that we're trying to wrap our minds around. It kind of seems like Jesus, maybe this is just my cynicism. Does it kind of seem like Jesus follows the Old Testament when he wants to and when he doesn't, he changes it? You'd have to be really cynical to think that way. That's what goes on in my head. But here's what Jesus does. He teaches them what the Sabbath is. And if we remember from when we went through the Ten Commandments a few years ago, the Sabbath was a day of rest provided after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. This was a day dedicated to God. When God rested after six days of creation, he wasn't tired he was resting. He was setting an example so that we can learn that there is one day where we can stop all of our strivings. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful for us to have our needs completely met by God just one day a week? See, the Sabbath is for that. And the Sabbath is fully lived out and completely lived out when a human need is met on it. Jesus is fulfilling the Sabbath when he demonstrates it. When someone receives life from the Sabbath rest, you have officially Sabbathed. You have Sabbathed when you have received life on that day of rest. We used to live in this town in northwest Iowa where there was a group of religious people who honored the Sabbath on Sunday, not Saturday, I, it didn't help when I tried to explain it to them. 
And if you did something on Sunday, they would let you know. We had friends who were hanging clothes on Sunday and a neighbor came across the street and said, in this town, we don't hang clothes on Sundays. Right? I would mow my yard on Sunday because it was a rest thing for me, right? See, Sabbath is life-giving, supposed to be life-giving. And what Jesus is demonstrating here is the Sabbath is meant for life. It's not meant for rigid rules and regulations. It's not meant to bind people, but it's meant to give us life. One of the things that I want you to see in every one of these stories from Mark chapter 2 is Jesus is not challenged by the world. He's challenged by the religious people, by the religious leaders. And as we were talking about this in staff meeting, it's so like us to think that if we're faithful to God, we're going to be challenged by the world. And we see the complete opposite here. He's challenged by people who think they know what obedience to God looks like. He's challenged by people who who have God in a box. Their own mindset of what God ought to look like. Their own mindset of what it ought to look like to love other people. And this ought to give us some pause. This is one of those opportunities for us to demonstrate humility and say, how have I tried to put God in a box? What are the things that I'm doing in my life, the interactions that I have with other people where I'm trying to limit God? Who am I not hanging out with? Who am I not giving hope to? And if Mark chapter 2 is any indication, obedience to God looks different than what we think it probably will. It's going to challenge us. Obedience to God may put us at odds with those who think someone's physical needs are the most important thing we must deal with. What I love about Jesus is he gets to the root of what's wrong with people. He deals with their sin. Their real sin. Not the sin that they show everyone else, but their real sin. So for us, what that looks like is when we see people manifesting sin in outward ways, what we ought to do is we ought to pause, ask God to reveal to us what's really going on in their life, and then enter into a conversation with them to try and see what's going on in here. To deal with the root of sin. Obedience to God is going to put us in relationship with all the wrong people. And while we have to enter into those spaces with wisdom and discernment, as Christians, we must not let fear get in the way of the people that we minister to and serve. We can't think they're, like it's going to rub off on us. Their dirt is going to rub off on us. Their sin is going to rub off on us. See, we can have confidence to go into places where sinners are and engage them in relationship. Obedience to God is going to force us to deal with our sins. Because if I, if I just keep reapplying a Band-Aid to the, to the core sin that's in my life, it's never going to get better. I'm just going to go through a box of Band-Aids. Jesus wants to fix what's going on in me. 
And obedience to God is going to force us to look out for the interest of others. It's going to force us to look out for the interest of others. And then demonstrate how what God has done for us actually gives us life. The rules and regulations that God gives his people are not designed to constrict us. They're not designed to restrict us and prevent us from having fun. God is not out to ruin our lives. He's out to give us guardrails. He's out to demonstrate to us what real life looks like. And what real life looks like is a life that's motivated by love of him. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would read your word and see in your word that you are bringing a kingdom that looks nothing like the kingdom we, we think we want. The kingdom that you are bringing is going to confront us. It's going to challenge us. It's going to shape us. It's going to expose us for who we really are. And who we really are is sinners. And we, we may be justified sinners. And you look at us and you see Christ. You do not see our sin. And that's true. And what we need is to be sanctified by you. We need to be made holy. And those things happen when we, when we see you for who you really are. Those things happen when we deal with our own sin. Those things happen. Sanctification happens when we look out for the best of other people. When we seek to serve, when we seek to love. God, this week as we reflect on your word to us today. Help us to be obedient to you. Joyfully, lovingly obedient. And it's in your son's end we pray.